Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome to the 17th and in fact uh, the final pre-Ramadan version of Islamic Book Reviews. Uh, my name is Usama Al-Azami and this is my weekly session where I interview uh, my colleague Omar Anshasi from the University of Edinburgh on what he's been reading lately. And uh, this week's book, uh, we are actually delighted to read um, or discuss uh, another colleague's book, um, a colleague of mine in this case, Christopher Melcher, and his book Before Sufism, Early Islamic Pronunciant Piety. Um, and uh, Omar, inshallah, will introduce um, the book uh, for about 10 to 15 minutes and then we'll launch into a discussion, followed by a, an opportunity to engage your comments and questions. As ever, you can write your comments in the, uh, on YouTube and uh, Facebook, YouTube on the chat, Facebook in the comments, and we will try to get to them in the last 15 to 20 minutes. And as ever, please uh, remember to subscribe. Um, we will be on hiatus for Ramadan and indeed the week prior Ramadan. Our own pre-commitments, unfortunately, in the run-up to Ramadan prevent us from actually having a session in the week prior Ramadan as well. But And we hope you'll understand that. But we hope to return, inshallah, um, in the sort of first Thursday after Ramadan. So without further ado, I'd like to hand it over to you, Omar, and uh, inshallah, uh, introduce the book. Thank you very much, Usama. Uh, this is an extremely important book, to be sure. And there's rather a lot going on in the book. Uh, for a book of this length, it has rather a large number of chapters, 10. Uh, so I should probably go through those. But what is the kind of basic, basic thesis of the book? Something that Meltzer repeats maybe four or five times and calls attention to. The title is Before Sufism. So prior to the emergence of Sufism, which he says can be, uh, you know, faithfully uh, termed Islamic mysticism in the mid-ninth century or thereabouts, uh, there is an early Islamic renunciant tradition, Zuhd, uh, the practitioners of which are referred to usually as Zuhad and Nusak. Uh, and this is the tradition, if you like, out of which Sufism later develops. Uh, and what is the key uh, kind of insight Melchit repeats? This early renunciant tradition represents an attempt to preserve the ethos of the conquest period once the conquests have wound down by the early 8th century. So uh, after the death of the Prophet wasallam, or really starting at the end of his life, uh, Muslims begin a series of conquests that, as Melchit points out, uh, lead to the creation of the largest empire that had been known uh, until that period in human history. And uh, Muslims are, as Patricia Krona has pointed out, a, a kind of tiny elite, uh, a tiny stratum sitting on top of the rest of society, a conquest elite uh, who were supported not by their labors, but through their stipends or atas, this kind of uh, conquest tribute, if you like. So these early Muslims aren't really in need of working for a living. And things slowly change uh, by the early 8th century. The, the kind of major part of the conquest is over. Uh, people are converting to, or begin to kind of convert to Islam in considerable numbers. Uh, so Muslims kind of slowly increase, or the Muslim community slowly increases in size, having initially been uh, outside of places like Syria, settled in garrison towns of their own founding, such as Kufa, Basra, and Fustat in, uh, in old Cairo. Uh, and 
there is this important series of social transformations in the 8th century uh, in which, uh, or out of which, this early Islamic renunciant tradition emerges. So, um, you know, along with the kind of end of the conquest period and the uh, increasing professionalization of the military, so it's no longer the case that all Muslim males or many Muslim males of all kinds of backgrounds are going out to fight in the jihad to expand the Darul Islam. Uh, the military becomes professionalized and already in the sources in the time of Abdul Malik uh, bin Marwan, you see this increasing association between active military service and the atas, or this kind of stipend that people are living off. Uh, so Muslims basically then, like the rest of us mortals, have to earn a living. <laughs> and this has an implication on the kinds of piety that one is able to cultivate. You know, if, if you have, uh, have to make a living, there's an important chapter on, if you like, the economics of uh, this renunciant tradition where he talks about the livelihoods, these, uh, how did these Zuhad make a living? Trade was a favored option, although there were many renunciant sayings kind of hostile to a critical of, of trade as a profession. It's seen as kind of worldly and distracting one from the members of God. Uh, as a result of the series of transformations, you know, the renunciant tradition tries to preserve this early ethos. Now, this is a rigorously historical work and both Hussam and I, we, you know, we love this kind of textual stuff uh, and it's overwhelmingly preoccupied with, with the close reading of primary sources and many, many are cited. I think there's more than 20 pages of, of bibliography. Uh, and in exploring the uh, renunciant tradition, these kind of Zohar, Melchett has three main sources, he says. Uh, to some extent, the works of Adab, uh, you know, think of uh, this kind of knowledge that every gentleman should be aware of, Aryun al-Khbar of Ibn Qutayb and so on, which always contains at least a layer or a, you know, a, a certain amount of uh, eloquent locution on the subject of renunciant behavior and so on. And also you have hadith sources, which are kind of distinctive because they devote much attention to Snad and so on. So this would include, for instance, sources like the Kitab al-Zuhd of Ahmed, uh, or also uh, Ibn al-Mubarak's uh, Abu Naim's Hilyat al-Awliya and so on. Uh, well, uh, Abu Naim's Hilya belongs really to the third genre, which is Sufism. Hmm. Uh, and uh, what's very important to, to, to point out is that Melchett emphasizes one really has to distinguish the development, the historical development of different styles of Muslim piety. Uh, so there is a kind of series of layers or strata, if you like, that historians should tease apart based on a careful reading of the sources, which is really what this book is concerned with, especially in the final chapter when he talks about the transition from uh, renunciant piety to Sufism, uh, kind of especially in the ninth century. And Sufism is a really a, a trend that emerges in Baghdad in the generation before uh, Junaid, who dies in 298. Uh, it's especially associated with, or the first kind of Sunni Sufis or reputable Sufis are associated with the circle of Abu Hatim al-Attar, who dies in the 260s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and in subsequent generations, Sufism absorbs competing mystical and ascetic trends 
including the Malamatiya, for instance, in Khurasan. And uh, it also absorbs kind of practices and in institutions, the Salamiya as well, with, uh, of, uh, of whom the most famous adherent probably is Abu Talib al-Makki, the author of Qut al-Qulub, who dies in 386. Uh, so classical Sufism is really a synthesis, if you like, of many distinct ingredients and later Sufi authors, especially in the 11th century, thinking of the, the authors of these classical handbooks of Sufism, like Abu Qasim al-Khushayri, they rewrite the history of Sufism so that it incorporates renunciant piety of the 8th century, as well as competing trends such as the Malamatiya, the Salamis, to some extent, uh, you know, also figures like Sahl al-Tustari, and so on. Uh, and classical Sufism is this kind of interesting mix of elements. And I should briefly, Osama, before, before we discuss it, and I know you have many interesting points to make, uh, give you a sense of the structure of the book. Unfortunately, I will have to depart from my usual practice because there are many chapters to this book, so I'll have to actually read out uh, the chapters. First chapter, basic problems. Uh, chapters two to five on physical and moral austerities uh, supererogatory forms of worship and new devotional forms are largely a, a kind of anthology, if you like, many primary sources in translation, which I think is extremely valuable. And you could very comfortably assign these chapters to undergraduate students who you know, want to know more about early Islamic renunciant piety. And he intersperses each of these, you know, you have a few stories, anecdotes, or uh, Zahid sayings, Zuhdi sayings interspersed with analytical comments. So for instance, uh, when it comes to moral austerity, you could say you know, all of these reports about early Zuhaid, you know, not laughing for 40 years or not smiling for 30 years, or Al-Ozai is reported to have said, you know, I think it's improper even to smile. Uh, Melchett will then interject and say, well, you do find contrary reports and even hadith that suggest a certain discomfort with this. I mean, his uh, kind of approach to hadith texts is is very Shaktian, um, and generally speaking, one can say that, like Shakht, he recognizes that reports attributed to the Tabi'in, the generation of the early, especially early second century, uh, are more like, much more likely to be historical than material attributed to the companions and the Prophet Ali Salatu Wasalam. And so, you know, he he will say, well. You have these reports where the Prophet laughed until his molas were visible and some renunciants and later Sufis uncomfortable with the idea of the Prophet laughing with his mouth open wide will gloss it by saying, for instance, that, well, his, uh, you know, he was smiling and somehow he showed his molas on smiling, which, of course, is absurd. Anyway, chapter six is very interesting because it engages quite heavily with Peter Brown's idea of the holy man. So chapter six is on, on the holy man, uh, Muslim holy man specifically, not the holy man late antiquity in, in Brown's sense. And then chapter seven on renunciance in politics, very interesting in abstaining from the rulers or, or not perhaps in some circumstances. Eight, as I said, on the economics of renunciation, how did they earn a living and so on, and institutional forms that later emerged in Sufism and how this helped sustain a class of religious something we can perhaps discuss and revisit uh, later in the show. And he also talks about opposition to renunciation, which is very interesting. We, we do have to come to that before finally embarking on, uh, in chapter 10 on the transition to Sufism. 
So uh, I, I hope that's given you, I mean, there's a lot going on in this book. There are so many chapters and right. so many sources and moving parts, as it were, to the argument. But I hope that's given us a sufficient basis for further discussion, Osama. Yes, absolutely. Jazakumullah khairan. And uh, I mean, I, I just wanted to sort of highlight the, the footnotes in the, uh, the version of the book I uh, was using. I was actually using an EPUB version are mm -hmm. continuous. And so by the time we're in chapter 10, uh, it's saying, you know, footnote 1080 or something like that. So it's very copiously sort of sourced um, text. And, yeah, uh, so I would say yeah. on average, every page, I would guess you'll have five or six, at least five or six references to right, primary right, sources, right. something like that. So, I mean, it's really uh, gone into those primary sources in a way, you know, exp exploring the Hidya and various other, you know, the Zuth works in the early period. Yes, um, I should also say he draws also on... Shi'i sources, Ismaili sources to a lesser extent. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the Sunni-Shi'i distinction, I mean, I should mention, Melchit says there are three things he will not really be or will omit in his account of mm -hmm. early Islamic renunciant piety. So he does not really focus on the gender question, although there's been a lot of recent scholarship on this. Right. He says, or he suggests that initial kind of research indicates that for the most part, most of the time, female renunciant piety was not gendered. Yes, you do find gendered expressions of it, but most of the time this is not the case. Uh, secondly, the main issue with researching Shia renunciant piety is the problem with the sources which tend to be later than Sunni sources, so 9th and 10th mm -hmm. century mm -hmm. as opposed to 8th. And mm -hmm. it seems if you look in Al-Barqi's Mahasin or Kulaini or Kulini's Kafi, these mm -hmm. are simply kind of uh, Sunni reports in a kind of Shia garb. Uh, and finally, yeah. he doesn't really look at apocalypticism in, in piety. Right, but there right. is... Um, but he has written, um, if I recall correctly, a fairly comprehensive article on apocalypticism specifically. Indeed. Yeah. And yeah. one of the nice things about this book is, of course, it builds on many years of important contributions to both the study of uh, early Islamic renounce in piety and, to some extent, Sufism as well. Right. Uh, you know, the piety of the Hadith folk, especially yes. this article I, I've been very influenced by on the transition from asceticism to mysticism. Now, mm. I should say in terms of terminology, in this book, uh, I think it's fair to say to, to a much greater extent than his previous work, uh, Melchert adopts the terminology of zuhd and renunciant piety right. as opposed right. to this, this term of ascetic, ascetic coming from the Greek which literally means athletes, so think of mm -hmm. sort of spiritual athletics. Right, right. So he only really, or most of the time in this book, he only discusses asceticism when contrasting it with mysticism. So right. the distinction between asceticism and mysticism mm -hmm. is really about this distinction, uh, or is coterminous with this distinction between early Zuhd and renunciant piety versus what emerges, especially in the mid-9th century onwards, Sufism, right. uh, as we would know it. Right. And there, you know, there is a nice diagram yeah. Yeah. illustrating this distinction, but the main thing is really this emphasis in renunciant piety on a kind of fear of a transcendent God versus mm. in mysticism, which one finds in many religious traditions, of course, mm. uh, a kind of emphasis on experiential knowledge of God and also kind of communion with a mm. uh, an imminent deity so interesting kind of contrast he, he, i mean he also so i remember looking at that um, sort of table and thinking so he he places um optimism under 
sort of mysticism and kind of a, a pessimism or as you put it fear of god and uh, um zuhd and uh, or asceticism actually he doesn't you know zuhd is renunciance uh, renunciant piety i suppose but um yeah it did make me wonder i mean obviously these are very broad typologies i don't think he was trying to read too much into it um because you do yeah, have so... within sufism uh, in the mature guys um the i i've heard um a shadili uh, sheikh for example comment that ghazali's outlook is more um sort of uh about inspiring fear of god whereas um abul hasan ashadili's outlook is more about uh ghazali is more khauf and abul hasan ashadili is more about raja you know for example yes and i think multi yeah. clearly acknowledges one finds yeah. different emphases yeah. You know, not only within Sufism, he, he accounts for all of these tensions in, right. in early Islamic Renaissance and piety. But even right. within different religions, you can speak of greater and lesser emphases and different trends. And you could even contrast, he suggests, religions to others in terms of more ascetic or more, more mystical. I mean, he does um, seem to like very much Ahmed Karam Mustafa's book on the formative hmm. period of Sufism. Hmm. Now, right. that framework of asceticism versus mysticism is very much indebted to Max Weber. Right. And Max Weber spoke of ideal types. So again, it's, you know, right. you have to right. kind of make these generalizations in order to analyze anything. He does but, appeal to Weber when he, uh, sorry, uh, in, his, in yes. that later chapter when he's talking about asceticism. And um, I missed this perhaps, but in that particular chapter, I assume he's kind of um, uh, returning to that because uh, he he kind of um uh, dissociates from the term asceticism when discussing zuhd in the uh, beginning of the book um and he says you know as you say asceticism is more related to mujtahid for example in in the sufi terminology yes. whereas zahid would be more renunciant but um uh, is once when he's talking about the weberian typology uh, is he basically just using that as you know this is more zuhd versus tawf that yes, that, okay. that's my understanding. Right, right. Uh, I mean, and he accepts, you know, without problematizing it too much, that, you know, Sufism is Islamic mysticism, and mysticism mm -hmm. is about experiential knowledge and communion with God, even though in something that Must uh, Karam Mustafa discusses in his book, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm scholars of religious studies endlessly, interminably debating categories like religion and mysticism and their definition right. and right. are they Eurocentric and all of this right. business, which I think he wisely steers clear of. Hmm. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're not always very profitable discussions, well, according to me, anyway. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I, felt, so, I felt the gap. I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm a little more preoccupied with some of these discussions. Yes. And I thought, I thought that, uh, you know, it would be... Because he, he, he makes a comment, he talks about sort of the way in which um, modern traditionalists, for example, in Mark Sedgwick's sort of terminology, uh, are people who look at the, what's the phrase they use? The universality of like all uh, religious traditions. Yes, so the idea that mysticism yeah. is really at the heart of all religions and right, all this, right, right. which he says is problematic because it, it contrasts what nearly all mystics say about their own religious traditions. And, and I entirely agree with that critique. But uh, at the same time, um, you know, I, I felt that uh, at times, I mean, these these are interminable debates, as you mentioned, and I'm reminded of sort of Alistair McIntyre's comments about modern ethical discourse mm. um, as being interminable. But uh, I, I thought that you know, that will leave some uh, readers a little dissatisfied potentially when they're thinking about the question of, okay, well, you know, 
uh, how does how how did these sort of like human propensities manifest in the modern period, so to speak, where uh, you know presumably if these tendencies have existed among human beings for thousands of years, maybe they're to use a Freudian term sublimated in some way in the modern context. But you, you know, say, as you say, it's not really the point of his book. So yes, yeah. but I mean, again, mysticism emerges later. This is yeah. you know a very clear theme of the book. Yeah, yeah. And thinking of the the holy man, I mean, mm, you know, Peter Brown is very much in the background and is cited a number of times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he does ask this question that scholars of Sufism are always exploring: Well, where does it come from? Mm. So, you know, for, for Melchor, it's not like there's a pristine Islam free of influence because he knows right. that the Quran is obviously biblical narratives figuring in right. very prominently. Right. Um, and he speculates, though he doesn't dwell on the point because he says he doesn't have the, the requisite languages, Syriac and Greek, to kind of demonstrate it. But mm. he says there are clear parallels and continuities between Syrian or Syriac monastic piety and early renunciant piety. So you even find occasionally parallel sayings and certainly many of the sentiments are shared. Right. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Yes, but he says that kind of scholarship, and I know figures like Ray, Rayhan Dormaz of Brown University is really working on, on this, this kind of overlap. He said it's, it's a theme that hopefully scholarship can, can increasingly explore. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and some of... Um, uh, our colleagues actually at Oxford and uh, some of their students. So I'm thinking, you know, Nikolai Sainer is cited um, by Melchett in that connection, so to speak, as being one of these people who tries to explore that sort of contextual history. Um, and uh, my own uh, sort of good friend, uh, Saqib Hussein, who's a student of uh, Nikolai, uh, is also, uh, you know, exploring some of these questions. I look forward to his dissertation when it gets published. And he's actually publishing, I think, a couple of important articles about the sort of historical context of I forget which surah, but it's going to be an expansive read, uh, I understand. So we look forward to those things as well. Uh, I mean, I just just very briefly, um, the the notion of the pristine sort of um, Islam, it's something which I, I wonder, um, I sometimes wonder who he's arguing against in those sorts of instances, because, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I wonder if he sort of, he makes a very sharp distinction between the historian or the scholarly historian and the sort of, uh, the confessional believer, so to speak, which uh, I think, um, you know, uh, there are, of course, various different perspectives on these sorts of questions, but um, my colleague uh, Christopher takes a, a somewhat sort of uh, old school view on this, shall we say. I, I just sort of wonder if there are um, outs outside of the sort of lay believer kind of within the Islamic scholarly class uh, who have, you know, been the people to preserve the multiplicity of doctrines in the earliest period, whether it's in the Musannaf works and so on, um, and the various Qur'at. Does anyone really think that these things are pristinely preserved, or is that I feel there's a recognition in the in the tradition within it within the tradition. To some extent, yes. I mean, yeah. some, and this is something that's come up in our discussions before. Someone mm. like Ibn Taymiyyah when mm. contrasted with other figures in the Muslim tradition is, is certainly much more historically minded. So he does actually mm. say interesting things about the development. But not of earlier than that, you think? No, I mean, no. I'm, I'm, there mm. is surely awareness that there was development, mm -hmm. but Sufism, 
you know, goes out of its way to stress continuities with the Renaissance tradition. True. That's absolutely So it's true, in the yeah. interest of the classical Sufi handbooks, for instance, yes. by Khoshedi to kind of rewrite this history to acquire as one all seamless whole. Yeah, acquiring all these authorities who have yes, been indeed. accepted by, yeah, yeah. And just yeah. thinking of going back to this theme of holy, the holy man in late antiquity and how mm. early Islamic renunciant piety continues and in some sense also diverges from it. And he points out that, you know, Muslims didn't appropriate everything. They kept what, what made sense to them. Uh, and there are some distinctions. So uh, the holy man in, in, in late antique Christianity is first and foremost a kind of arbiter and intercessor. And the kind of form that arbitration takes in the Islamic context really for Meltzer is if there. Uh, if that in one uh, report he finds is a kind of putting oneself between the belief and God. Why? Because you're, uh, you're sort of speaking on, on God's behalf, yes, yes, yes. as Ibn al-Qayyim kind of yes. famously says. <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, in the early period, um, you know, before, you know, after the conquest of Arundal, you find increasing professionalization of the militaries, I said, but also differentiation, so socially speaking and sociologically speaking. Right. So you have the emergence, instead of learned holy people, as it were, hmm. uh, jurists and renunciants, and the, the kind of paths to some extent begin to diverge by the end of the 8th century. And this, hmm. this is why he has this kind of interesting you know, chapter on uh, opposition to renunciant piety. So right. some strands of the Kitab al-Kasp attributed to Shaybani, which came up in mm. the episode on Sean Anthony's book, yeah, seem yeah. to be genuinely Shaybani's. I, I know Meltzer has an article on this. Of course, much of it dates later, but mm. in Shaybani, but certainly in Muhasibi, who has a, a chapter on Makassib, yes. mm -hmm. uh, he is kind of critical of this already by, you know, probably as early as Shaqiq al-Balkhi, who dies in 194. Hmm. Uh, and it's also sometimes attributed to Sahla Tustari, uh, this view that right. it is unlawful to earn, earn one's living, or in the case of Balkhi, he says that haraka, you know, even movement to earns and one's livelihood is unlawful. So when this kind of professionalization and, and um, I should say differentiation increases, you find increasing tension between the traditionalists and some forms of renunciant piety. Although when you have your first kind of proper Sufi circles emerging with Abu Hatim Latar in the two, who dies in the 260s, uh, Melchett notes that he did not attract traditionalist criticism. In fact, eschewed the Ahl al-Mahabba, these kind of Sufis who stressed the rhetoric of ishq, of passionate love for God. And he does at the end talk about the Inquisition against the Sufis launched by Ghulam Khalil in 264. Right, right, uh, right. But you do find these I mean, even in, in terms of the kinds of miracles and karamat cultivated and practiced right. by the early renunciants, less stress uh, among the Muslims than in the Christians on healing and you know, uh, resolving famine and so on. Right, right. Uh, but uh, intercessory prayer is very important. You know, his, his dua was answered, as it were. Right. Right. And there's a very interesting discussion of the Abdal, these kind of curious figures. Yeah. And on this theme of, of uh, you know, uh, pristine, pure Islam, he points out that 
while he speculates on the origins and he says that, well, you know, in the, in the Talmud there's reference to 36 kind of holy figures, the number of the Abdel being 40, you find references to the Budala and, and, and kind of parallel ideas, the idea being that mm -hmm. a spiritual replete, whose number is constantly replenished when one passes away, already in Musnad Ahmed. Of course, much later in Sufism, classical Sufism, it becomes an elaborate hierarchy with the Qutub and uh, all of these other outad and right. so on. Right, right. But, but you but find, the, you know, it, it, yeah. I mean, uh, just looking at the Musnad of Ahmed, and also I think it, this comes in um, sort of uh, works of the students of Ahmed as well. I, I forget which book he's citing in particular. But, you know, um, Ahmed didn't have a problem with this notion of Abdal. And, and uh, then, you know, he also talks about the fact that uh, um, some of the uh, Abdal, uh, it, it's reported that they didn't, you know, really know that they were Abdal, so to speak. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's something that was in a sense uh, revealed after they died or something along those lines. And yeah, there's so nothing... by the way, we yeah. should stress, notice this yeah. contrast between this renunciant tradition where Abdal may not even know they're Abdal and they certainly wouldn't proclaim it. Yeah. When you go to the more extravagant forms of later Sufism where right. Fazl Rahman, you know, says they tend to make these extravagant claims about themselves being the Mujaddid mm. and the you know right. and seal the of the Muhammadan right. saints and the Qutb and right. all of this business. Right, right. So this is just one respect in which you find a very clear distinction between the early Islamic renunciant tradition and classical or Sufism essentially. And, I mean like um, so uh, one one thing that I that came to mind as I was reading uh, that section on the Abdal was that uh, you know it as far as I recall, the muhaddithin are very scathing about the reports that are attributed to the Prophet about this. Um, but you do find them in the Musnad of Imam Ahmed, and I think they are sort of not considered to be the strongest by modern editors or by you know someone like Ibn Taymiyyah who discusses them you know much earlier. By, by Ibn yes. Taymiyyah's time, you're seeing that sort of um, what you described as kind of like these extravagant claims. Um, my recollection and my history of, of the Sulf is not great, but you know my recollection is that um, it's not really terribly pronounced at the time of Ghazali. It's not you know in in the sort of his major works. And, um, uh, certainly, but, it becomes yeah. more pronounced over time. That's for sure. And, and so, in a sense, what you've got is uh, this development, which is happening within the you know Ahl al Hadith, in a sense, at the time of Ahmed, um, of notions of Abdal and things like yeah. this. And Melton, of course, yeah. is not. You know, Looking at the he, is yeah. he is interested yeah. in a Sanid, but right. not in the way a classical Muslim Hadith critic might be. So, but right. Rashid Rida does have an interesting article on this where he basically says, yeah. you know, it doesn't appear till very late, relatively speaking. And hmm. in the Musnad, these are all very dubious. And he, as far as I remember, he cites Ibn Taymiyyah when, when discussing this. But, uh, but certainly, the, certainly the Qutub that, seems to be a later development, the Abdel sure, but, first. But the fact that uh, Ahmed is giving it credence, he, he includes it in his collection. And he but, also, you know, his, his that, students seem to quote from him that, you know, such and such is, uh, but, you know. Uh, yeah, but I mean, something yeah. appearing in the Musnad does not mean it has a basis. I mean, there are plenty, by classical hadith standards, sure. there are a number of fabrications, in the, outright fabrications sure. in the Musnad. But, but I'm trying to signal that even for someone the idea staunch Ahl al-Hadith, figure as a, a, a staunch sort of like symbol uh, in, in our minds at least um, in the later sort of like you could say mythology uh, without being disparaging so to speak of uh, what Ahl-Sunnah is Ahmad is that central figure in a sense that yeah. stands up for Sunnah against Bid'ah and things like this and the Mehna and so on so yes. yeah I mean yeah I find that 
I mean, in a sense, there's something to be said about, you know, what's the allergy that, uh, you know, um, Rida feels. To a certain extent, that is the development of these concepts in later Sufism, right? When, when yes, Sufism but become, comes to its own. I yeah. agree. I, I should yeah. say that and this this doesn't feature in the book so much, but I, when he talks about Sufism rewriting its history, hmm. I so and he does talk about how this kind of new Sufi ethos becomes all pervade, all pervading and right. so on. Right, right. So successful is this rewriting yeah. that you know people like Junaid, even to a scholar like Ibn Taymiyyah, is just part of the mainstream of Sunni Islam. Right. Even though many of these figures were somewhat controversial, I mean, he says that. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that was an interesting discussion of Junaid's extent, sort of <laughs> yes prevarication, so to speak. Yes, and his studied ambiguity, shall we say. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, he escaped persecution. It seems to be historical, I think Melchior suggests, hmm. when uh, people were being rounded up, when Ghulam right. Khalil started his inquisition right. uh, by claiming he was a, a jurist of the school of Abu Thawr and therefore right. not a Sufi and beyond suspicion, as it were. Right. Uh, so, but, you know, and classical Sunnism, you know, part of that synthesis is, of course, mm. is Sufism, not, not mm. merely yeah. only renouncing yeah, piety. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, again, um, you know, this is where thinking about, um, you know, the Taymiyyan tradition and Uvaymar Anjum, of course, and, and Ariane Post are, I think, the two major figures uh, in, in the current sort of scholarship uh, on that Taymiyyan tradition. Uvaymar uh, speaks about, uh, you know, Sufism without mysticism, right? And, um, you know, that that's an interesting, you know, that in, in many respects, that's an important trend in the modern period as well, because of this sort of rejection of uh, extravagant claims and all the rest of it. Um, you, and you could read that as an attempt to reclaim this early Islamic, or right. appropriate this early Islamic Renaissance in piety. Now, right. the thing is, there are elements, I mean, Melchett says at the outset that he's, uh, at the outset, he's not trying to sell the Renaissance tradition to anyone, but it is a tradition with integrity and deserves our respect. Hmm. But if you read chapters two to five, Right. <laughs> which features so many primary sources, you know, yes. you do Extremely come to rich, the conclusion yeah. that your own worship is, is worthless, basically. <laughs> yes. And But there are strands <laughs> that seem seem um, somewhat extreme. So people yeah. not eating or eating once a month or, or fasting until fasting perpetually, you know, CM and turning death. green, so to speak. Yes. Um, yeah. Things like this. Yeah. Uh, discussion of, I mean, he, he always mentions the tensions and contradictory reports and, and so right. on. So the idea, for instance, that you should, should not read the Quran in fewer than three days. Right. But right. the Kufans seem to have been fine with, with less than this, it, it seems. I mean, he said the traditionists generally seem to be sort of, or traditionalists, as he, so the Al-Hadith, I assume he um, means in that particular instance, seem to be fine with it, which just struck me as like, they're the, they're the last people you expect to do that because... These are reports which are transmitted from the Prophet, right? Yes. But, uh, so, but it's already, ubiquitous, yeah. Yeah, and already mm. within our Islamic Renaissance party, you also have a, a, ten, a, a tendency of, of critique, or there's always the possibility of critique. Right. So, right, right. Uh, Malchut says that unlike modern athletics, you know, these Zuhad cannot exceed the example of the Prophet. Right. So he says already with Malik in the Mu'atta, you find these reports, you know, about a man who would stand in the sun and not speak and fast right. continuously. Right. And the Prophet is reported to have reproached him and yeah. said, you know, he should speak, he should stand in the shade and he can continue his fast. 
Um, and he mentions, I think, the Haq bin uh, Muzahim mm -hmm. uh, saying that he didn't like mask. Mm -hmm. uh, and when being told that the companions wore it and used it, yeah, and he reportedly he said, you know, I know, we know better than them or something like oh, this. So yes, yes, this yes. possibility of critique is always, you can always mobilize it by saying, well, so Melchert says that, and again, by the end of the 8th century, the, there does seem to be a kind of increasing distance between, or as a result of this differentiation between traditionalists, the Al-Hadith and the Renunciants. Mm -hmm. And part of it is... Uh, is really to do with this this, this kind of critique. Right. So he says that the austerity is commanded in in the Hadith corpus, as represented by the six books, for instance, are mm. relatively moderate. Right. right. You know, you have none of this business of eating once a month or twice a month or right. not right. eating meat. I mean, you do find a vegetarian strand, yeah. even although it's not very prominent. He could yeah. Yeah, so the Prophet Baratun, Baratun, Saram, yeah. as is well known, married and ate right. meat. Right, and right. you know, the companions ate clarified butter or salmon. Right. Uh, so all of these other things. They were kind of warriors and their piety of course did entail certain kinds of renunciation. I and mean, the Quran right. talks about right. uh, those who right. So it does talk yeah. about people staying up, you know, half the night and so so that yeah. is if you like indigenous <laughs> to, to or it's uh, uh, this kind well, of it's Quranic at the very least and so it's yeah. very central in, in the canon so yeah, yeah so I insofar as one can speak of a pristine Islam certainly the right. Quran is it right uh, at least yeah I mean I, yeah I, I, again like just on the sort of my a bit of a bugbear about <laughs> the labeling of pristine in that way I mean I think there is this consciousness among the earliest people that, you know, they, you know, they're, they're literally sitting down and deriving ahkam, right? Um, a lot of them, at least, I guess, uh, you know, you have the difference uh, of approach among the Ahlul Ra'i and Ahlul Hadith, um, so to speak, and uh, or the Ara'itiyin and the Ahl, and uh, people like Malik, mm -hmm. but they are very self-consciously recognizing that we are dealing with, um, you know, masail that were being asked and they're having to engage in ijtihad. In a sense, what's interesting is for them, you know, uh, for them, it's the, it's the ijtihad esteem, so to speak, uh, to use again the, the language of um, Ahmed Fakhri Ibrahim. Uh, the codification episteme comes later on. And um, I guess it's for later scholars, and it's in the modern period that we think very self-consciously about development, historical development. It's not necessarily the case that they were thinking, okay, well, we're obviously a part of the history and this is how that's doing. For them, it's like, well, uh, you know, anything that happened before us at the time of the Prophet was a perfect age that we need to emulate whatever we can and everything else has declined. A lot of people are thinking in those terms, of course. So there is a yes. kind of development, it's just a negative development. So and something yeah. Meltzer points to, I mean, he stresses yeah. continuity in the sense that, especially in the Zuhd literature, yeah. one finds all kinds of reports, for instance, in Ahmed's Kitab Zuhd about pre-Muhammadan Prophet Right. Uh, and, you know, monks often feature in these, these kinds of reports. Again, to, to return to this distinction, hmm. to a much greater extent than is true of Christian uh, asceticism hmm. because already with the solidarity of this early conquest elite who as Krona says number no more than half a million 
reigning over or ruling over a population of anywhere between 20 and 30 million. So you're talking about a thin crust on right. top of society. Right. Uh, but there is a very strongly communal element from the outset by virtue of things like jihad and, right. um, and so on. And the f well, I mean, also the, the also fact the that Muslims fact are living in, in Amsar and in garrison, garrison cities. cities. Yeah, yeah. Which, which so, may help maintain their language and culture. So, yeah. you know, you don't, he says, you don't really find many Muslims. In the, there are no Muslim desert fathers. You, you know, if you go to a desert, you'll find monks much more than you'll find Muslim ascetics. Okay. And the cell of, of the Muslim is his yeah. house or her house. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, rather than these kind of separate communities. Now, with uh, the kind of development of waqf law, and he says habus is the term kind of used more in the early period, That's you get this possibility yeah. for a kind of institutionalized religious class who mm -hmm. kind of then do their separate thing. So that's kind of classical Sufism. You have these uh, ribats and so on. Right, right, right. Uh, so in a sense, the waqf allows... For, I mean, it's a fascinating sort of uh, drawing on uh, the history and uh, to recognize that there are certain transformations taking place in society that allow for the manifestation of certain kinds of, um, you know, religious uh, culture to, man uh, yes, to appear. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it, it is kind of concerned with this sociological development so yeah, and differentiation. Yeah. So he talks about religions having or you know two possible solutions uh to to this so you know once you have this uh post-conquest period and so on well either you can put uh, renunciant behavior kind of within the, within the reach of people generally right which he terms the protestant solution <laughs> right uh, or you can create a separate class of religious who Elites, so, yeah. This is this is the monastic solution, right? right. Uh, so, uh, and he says you find kind of elements of the monastic so right. solution in classical Sufism, mm. but in the renunciant tradition, uh, you know, there's there's an expectation that no, these are ideals that everyone should try to implement. Right. right the Sufis right. are kind of more aware of this differentiation, and they do see themselves as, as a, in some sense an, a spiritual elite, right. Uh, right? Who hold themselves to a higher standard. And this, uh, this is, in classical Sufism, you're saying that, in a sense, society, and, and you're drawing on Melchard, obviously, um, is um, developed enough and, and, in a sense, structurally differentiated enough to start to uh, manifest these various um, sort of social categories. Precisely. And, uh, yeah. And, and he, I mean, he speaks also about the ribat transforming to a sort of khanqa, in a sense, um, you know, Precisely. In, in the classical period, yeah. The Khanqa, by the way, an institution yeah. that classical Sufism seems to have adopted from the Karamiya. He says, by the way, the, mm. the correct term is Karamiya, not Karamiya, with the, the Shad on the Ra, based on some poetry. Forgive uh, my, pardon my ignorance, uh, please remind me, the Karamiya are a sort of... This um, kind of competing sect. ascetical yes. movement... Ibn right. Karam dies in 255, I want to say. Okay. Uh, very much associated with early Hanafism and kind mm. of wonder-working and feats of, you know, miraculous feats and so on, preaching. So liturgically, yeah. Uh, theologically, they're mostly remembered for their supposed anthropomorphist uh, tendencies. Right. And Aaron Zaisau has done, has done uh, some work yes, on the, the, the Margaret Malamud and others as well. Right, right. Uh, but yes. And so I think he's written the Encyclopedia of Islam article on them. 
something along Yes, and uh, this interesting article that Meltzer cites, I think it's the very last reference in the bibliography right, right. by Vatuv Zaiso's name beginning Z Y. Right. Uh, these kind of two early uh, Karami texts, one of which is Al Sughdi's Fatawa, mm -hmm. which preserves actual fiqhi opinions, it seems, of Ibn Karam himself. Mm. Uh, which is very fascinating. So, uh, in a sense, yeah. forgive me. Um, in a sense, the suggestion is that the Khanqa or the Zawiya, uh, so to speak, to use the Arabic term, is something which um, develops internally to the Islamic uh, scholarly tradition, rather than being adopted um, from from other traditions. Well, that's unclear. It's not something mm, Meltzer okay. comments on, okay. and I know that right. other scholars have pointed to the influence of, of Buddhism. And he says, right. you know, you do find Muslims right. who. So it's not the case that all Muslims, uh, Meltzer says, you know, accept Sufism as a kind of trans-historical uh, essence, right. or I think it's a super-historical essence I, that I has think, always pervaded yeah. Islam. But yeah. some Muslim critics of Sufism, he says, do stress this external influence model. Right. Uh, influence is something of a dirty word. He, he says he prefers the term variant development because there is no kind of pristine Islam, as it were. Right. Uh, but he says, well, if that was true, then you know, why is it that Sufism emerges in Iraq and Egypt rather than further mm. east in Iran? Right. Right. And why does it emerge when Buddhist influence has really kind of diminished when, in the ninth right. century rather than right, early right, on right. when it was much stronger, at least potentially? Right. Yeah, I mean, fascinatingly, I mean, um, I recall... Uh, I think fairly early, um, you know, Halaj is accused of, um, you know, spending time in India and drawing on traditions from there. But um, so the Habib's yeah. account in the CR is basically that he was this wonder worker who was a charlatan and a sorcerer who learned from India and so on. Right. But at the same time, uh, just a contemporary um, sort of scholar uh, who uh, some people might be a bit surprised, someone like Muhammad al-Hassan al-Dada, who is you know, seen as kind of a Salafi slash Islamist uh, oriented figure. Um, I, I remember listening to a lecture of his on uh, the Sulf and he was saying that, well, you know, spiritual traditions can be drawn on from other sort of even non-Muslim sources if necessary, like certain practices. And uh, yeah. so I've I mean, if certain... some very heated conversations, yeah. actually one with the former student of Dr. Melcher, when I referred to certain Sufi breathing practices, Hindu-inspired rituals, but well, I mean, you know, the the Lataif sit in the Nashbandi tradition and the sort of um, the six chakras, or or sorry, I don't know my Sufism or my Buddhism well enough, um, but uh, you know the chakra points in the you know Indian slash um, you know broader tradition. Um, there are too many of these commonalities to be just. <laughs> dismissive of uh, outside influence. But what's interesting for me is someone like Muhammad Hassan, well, they're, they're suggesting that, well, that's perfectly fine if it's useful for the sort of spiritual practice in question, he suggests that. Um, yeah, and, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not really happy with that. But anyway. <laughs> uh, it's a more emic so, conversation. Yeah, and you do yeah. find these divergences, you know, from the model of the Christian holy man in late antiquity. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's interesting, one thing he comments that I mean, the, the very first figure it seems to be called the Sufi, who is not a Sufi in the later sense, right. is this Abu Hashim of Kufa who dies in 150. 
And then the second half of the second century, you do find figures such as associated with the Sufiyat al-Mu'tazila. He says that Mu'tazila is emerging from some kind of renunciant movement because Mu'tazila mm -hmm. means kind of to seclude oneself or remove oneself mm -hmm. from the company of. Uh, and those rebuking rulers, for instance, so they're very strongly associated again with this in the early, earliest period, Nahi al Munkar. He talks mm. about this story of someone criticizing Al-Ma'mun and so on. Right. Uh, but Sufism itself unfolds, and the sig signification of that term, in fact, shifts right. considerably in the second and third centuries. I mean, towards the conclusion of the book, um, uh, Christopher talks about the fact that, um, you know, Sufism has this ability to read anything as a Sufi text, right? <laughs> this is, yeah, yeah I, I can't remember exactly. I think it was Ibn Ajiba or something like this, who, or um, one of these sort of um, more uh, westerly figures who wrote um, a commentary on the Ajrumiya, which was a Sufi commentary, right? Yes. And you can, you can find these Jamie, texts. Even by the way, there are Sufi elements in his commentary on the Kafia or whatever grammatical, advanced grammatical right. texts or right. the Shafia, right. one of these, I forget. Right. Uh, and Melchert says, I mean, this is part of the nature of mysticism, if one can speak right. of the nature of mysticism, because as he once says, said to a student, you know, mystics can find uh, inspiration or the presence of God yeah. in, in, a, in yeah. a phone book. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, a fascinating line. entertaining uh, line. I, so, I mean, it's a, it's a great line in, in so many respects, you know, I, I think there, of, there are uh, quite a few yeah. entertaining one liners, by the way, in the book, there's a sort of dry sense of humor. I find yes. amusing. Right. Um, I mean, I, you know, I've when I've taught uh, in a classroom setting, um, you know, undergraduates about the sort of, you know, this is one of the things that uh, I, I actually personally enjoy in, in the sort of company of writers in the range, realm of the sort of, I, I very often use um, William Chittick's uh, Sufism, A Beginner's Guide. And it's a, you know, it's so full of poetry as a text um, as well. But it's about, you know, how one develops a lens with which to see the world as a source of inspiration. Uh, you know. yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I particularly, you know, uh, William Chittick's book is very different from uh, Christopher's book in the sense that <laughs> the contrast between the heaven and the earth and I'll <laughs> let the listener figure out or decide which is the heaven and which is the earth. <laughs> but uh, but yes, I mean, um, yeah, it's uh, that's that's one dimension of that tradition that I particularly enjoy as it were. Yeah. Yes, but I mean, you know, I, I I but really like but at the, the same time, Chittick, I think value and discipline. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the challenge that we face when reading someone like Chittick uh, is because when I, you know, now I've got sort of Christopher's book. So if I'm in the position of teaching Sufism again, you know, I've got another resource to draw on. But you know, the contrast between someone like Chittick and Karim Mustafa's sort of formation of Sufism uh, is striking because one is a historical work and the other is a work of inspiration, as it were. Oh, you mean um, Chittick rather than Karim Mustafa? Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, yeah. Chittik is a work of, you know, inspiration in a sense. He's trying to get people interested and uh, and trying to, in a sense, help people experience it to a certain extent. Which, yes. as you as you which mentioned, I'm sure Melchut would be uneasy with. I mean, I think in fields in as like much as Sufism, I mean, he, yeah, in as much as uh, you know, taking it too seriously, I think uh, Christopher, you know, would not necessarily encourage. But you saw, in, you know, he's telling a student, okay, why don't you try this renunciant practice of not, you know. Not talking, uh, or about not, not uh, being involved with what, yeah. what, what does that mean? Yeah, so precisely. 
and uh, and you know he found it very difficult because he had to end up you know engaging in small chit chat with a guest who dropped in a guest of his wife or something like that yes, they so, were curious about old friends and what they'd got up to and stuff right right and and so you know that's a fascinating experiment to engage in i think with um you know uh, christopher is very conscious about uh, he mentions it, uh, i think in that context or elsewhere that um you know these things really one struggles with and in some cases you know some of these people must have been quite unpleasant as well, right? People engaged in some of these sorts of yes, um, I mean, uh, uh, practices. He talks about, so you have this uh, argument about Makassib and Kesp prohibiting mm. un- un- means of living, but much more commonly in the Renunciant tradition, <laughs> something Muhasabi also criticizes, neglect mm. of one's so wife right. and children and so on. Right. Right. Uh, which is, I mean, you could say, well, even the Quran says, fitna," and all of this right. other business. So we could say it has Quranic roots, but, you know, right. but it's one not, can pursue yeah. it to extremes, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, of course, a sort of mature Sunni synthesis would, you know, reject those sorts of claims on the basis of the way in which the Prophet lived his life and tried to sort of... Well, I mean, um, ma- ma- yeah. mature classical cynicism is really a big tent, so it's not that you can't yeah. find these elements present there as That's well. Very but true. That's very they true. coexist with contradictory trends. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you have hadith discouraging and even prohibiting begging. Right. And saying that it's better to, you know, get a firewood on your back and to sell it than to beg for one's living. But, right. you know, you had, on the other hand, renunciants who you know, lived essentially off the charity of others. Right, right. And renunciants who also condemn living or being dependent on others. This kind of, what one finds in in this uh, literature. uh, And even within the the mature tradition. On independence from other humans, yes. And as as you mentioned, even in the mature tradition, which is a big tent tradition, you have these tendencies among the Malamitiya and various other sort of groups. Uh, And even within sort of orthodox uh, you know, quote, quote, sort of orthodox um, readings of people like um, Ghazali, you know, you can find uh, treatments of these questions as very often, I think, um, short term practices that you engage in in order to gain a certain kind of, you know, for example, ab- self abnegation to recognize that, look, you're not beneath begging, so to speak. Yes, I mean, things, things yeah. like, I can't remember if it's the Ghazali or one of the Malamites who discusses stealing clothes from a bathhouse. So that people call you a thief and condemn you and your ego is right. destroyed and all of this. Yeah. So Ghazali, yeah, Ghazali right probably the, wouldn't encourage that, but he'd narrate the story. <laughs> That's yeah. what I take. Right now, now, right at the end of the book, he does mention Ghazali's Ahiyya. Ghazali's Ahiyya is really the big synthesis. Right, right, right. All of these competing trends, well, not all of them. I mean, classical Sufism does marginalize. In mm. fact, many of the earliest figures to be labeled Sufis. Hmm. And it's especially you find already in like Kalabadi and these other other chaps, hmm. uh, this kind of antinomian trend hmm. are are rejected, and law continues to remain important to the the classical Sufi tradition. Right. But Ghazali is you know one of the these rewriters, and the is a synthesis only borrows heavily without acknowledgement from right. uh, the Qut al of course. Right, right, right. I, I'm a little conscious of time. We have about five more minutes, and if anyone has any questions, um, please do feel free. This has been a wonderful conversation, Amar. And of course, we need to be very grateful to um, Christopher for Christopher Alchet for writing <clears throat> really a fascinating book. Um, 
Notwithstanding Indeed. my own sort of like uh, predilection for the inspirational, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> but, you know, as you mentioned, Omar, chapters two to five can be read in that sort of spirit. Yes, yeah, so you know, as a devotional. Not, not inappropriately. <laughs> as we, uh, in the run up to, to Ramadan. Ramadan. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you were to just take chapters two to five, right. which Melchett interspaces here and there with analysis and explaining these contradictory right. trends and reports. Right, right. Right. You could, I mean, great, great, uh, especially because there are so many primary sources in translation, excellent for right. assigning to undergrads. Right. Right. But you could assign it, you know, it's, it's a spiritually edifying uh, <laughs> the section of the workbook. I mean, honestly, when yeah. you're reading it, you, you can't help but be affected by, you know, the, the, all, of, all of these, these reports on fasting uh, and, and prayer yeah. and so on. And, and this is, you know, in a sense, the raison d'etre of these writings. Um, you know, ironically, it's coming through in in a sort of work of very serious history. Yes. But um, as you say, like you can read this, and I'm reminded of you know reading something like I don't know Madari Jusadiki or something like this, that uh, you get report after report, uh, and it it's kind of to a certain extent if you're you know reading this in that sort of spirit, it's like it's bashing you around the head saying. What oh, are yeah. you doing with your life? <laughs> I mean, I, I feel very ashamed, actually, when, <laughs> yes. when reading chapters two to five, uh, uh, which I'm sure Dr. Meltzer will find them. <laughs> I'm sure he'll find very amusing. Uh, yes, yeah. yes, indeed. Um, but, uh, but in any case, uh, you know, as I say, I think we're um, very grateful for, for this work. And there are so many other dimensions, as you say, it's actually, they're short chapters, but they're so, they're so packed with, um, substance in my, in yes, my reading. Yes, I, I don't know if it's yeah. my imagination, but I felt the the font was maybe slightly smaller, the lines were closer together, because you feel on every page there there is a huge amount of material. Yeah. I mean, it's just the in, frequent citations from primary and secondary sources or something. No, I don't think it's your imagination, because if, if I recall correctly, um, so some publishers, and, and De Grote is similar to Brilliant, this is far as I recall, um, they have a slightly, you know, so to speak. Um, they have a slightly longer spine length, and so the writing ends up appearing a bit smaller if you're sort of, um, you know, reading it on screen as I did. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of the actual sort of, um, it took me, <laughs> it, it it felt like, uh, you know, um, ex particularly some of these chapters with the copious footnotes drawing extensively on, you know, book kutub of Zuhud and Halyat al-Awliya is very, very um, yes, copiously drawn probably on. I would guess the single most cited source in yeah, the yeah, book, yeah. primary source. In, in fact, I mean, I, you know, venture to suggest and, and you'd be better on this uh, than I am, but it's probably uh, one of the few texts in the English language that draws so heavily on Halyat. So it may be actually one of the best, better expositions of the contents of the Halyat. Oh, on yeah. these certain questions. Honestly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Halia, I, I feel, has been one of these neglected later sort of um, collections. Yes, and, uh, and he, does, yeah. he does defend it in the sense that it's one of these works that has attracted a lot of criticism, and yeah. he, he kind of discusses Jonathan Brown's critique that, well, I, I didn't careless. feel, yeah, I, d I didn't feel, I mean, this is where I, I maybe dissent a little from uh, Christopher's reading, um, but I didn't think that Jonathan Brown's sort of um, paragraph was necessarily critical he wasn't saying that this isn't to be you know, I, mean, I think it was yeah. was critical but okay. Melchard says that well I think or my what the sense I got mm. from Brown's uh, paragraph was perhaps different mm. from Dr. Melchard's because Dr. Melchard says well if you look at earlier sources mm. earlier than the Hilya these prove yeah. that Abu Naim is citing reporting his material carefully without distorting it but Brown mm. is not accusing 
uh, Abu Naim of making anything up. He's accusing yeah, him of just reporting so. all of this, you know, dodgy material, basically. Well, yes, but I mean, carelessly. the thing is, well, I mean, I. Again, in the defense of both Brown and Melchett to a certain extent, and Abu Naim for that matter, I mean, uh, the later, the sort of, um, in, in the, the muta'akhirin, in the sort of hadith tradition, their tradition, as far as I understand, is, you know, if you've done ihala, that's it, right? You know, you've, you've kind of referenced your isnad, and it's up to the experts to go and then read those texts and recognize that this is sort of, and sometimes they're doing, you know, um, uh, deliberately trying to find these obscure passages because you know all the all the significant stuff uh, in a sense has been codified at this point and and uh, yeah. yeah but I mean as, maybe as, we, I mean, as yeah. we've seen in a previous previous episodes and as well hopefully Rika when we discuss Garrett Davidson's wonderful book right. which we've been promising right. to discuss in right. all our future episodes after Ramadan you know uh, post classical critics weren't necessarily passing all of these snads most of the time at least uh, readers no but but at the same time, in a sense, the the responsibility of whether one is sort of like being a faithful transmitter yeah. is only um, there to the previous generation, in a sense, if you're including the full Senate. You're not making a claim that this is true. You're not saying this is um, sort of the, the prophet. So that, that would be just my dissenting kind of <coughs> reading yes. of, of Jack. Jack's but, book. but uh, in any case, this is a very can, valuable... Can I say one, one final point about um, you know, Abu Naim is... You know, even someone like Ibn Taymiyyah likes him, <laughs> as far as I recall. He says that you know he he actually does include, uh, you know, a lot of sound reports. So um, uh, and that's that's my recollection. I'm going to have to look at that. It's a short fatwa, if I recall correctly. So, yes, oh, I do okay. remember, uh, and I'm this might be my last observation before we end, because uh, he's of course interested. Well, you know, tabaka works are important when it comes to rewriting the history of Sufism. People like As-Sulami, um, on whom Safarak Chowdhury has a monograph, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, recently. Uh, and uh, I, I remember he has a tafsir as well. Hmm. And the Dhabi says of his tafsir, if I remember correctly, Fihi <laughs> Karmata. <laughs> so it has this kind of esotericist. And you, you can find, even in classical Sufism, like Ghazali's. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jawahir al-Qur'an is full of this kind of, you know, al-Hasan wal husayn Lola wal-Murjan means al-Hasan wal husayn this kind of business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, uh, you know, this is, this is um, it's, it's a tricky business, isn't it? Because, I mean, you have these competing tendencies, as we briefly discussed, with Ubaim al-Anjum talking about Sufism without mysticism and, and, uh, and in a sense, uh, without the Arfan traditions that, that come in. Um, and that's a tension that, you know, continues to this day um, in, in very sort of like striking ways. Although I think for much of the last, you know, thousand years, the success has been on the side of the, the Arfaniyun, so to speak. Um, but uh, yeah, inshallah, I mean, I look forward to uh, discussing these. And I just wanted to maybe, there's, we've had one, um, Muhammad Aydrus, uh, who's, uh, I think, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of blanking on where I'm, I, we've met. But I feel as though we've met at an academic setting. But he, he says, Jazakumullah khairan for an enlightening series. I'm just going to share this. It's a very kind comment, and we're very grateful to you. Jazakumullah khair for a very enlightening series. Wishing you Ramadan Kareem and Salam Maqbul, and looking forward to you again in after Ramadan, inshallah. And that's a really wonderful um, point on which to end. Um, uh, you know, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allahumma balighna Ramadan. We're only, you know, a, a matter of days away at this point. 
And uh, I also uh, wanted to sort of highlight that this is actually quite the opposite text in preparation for Ramadan, yes. because it reminds so me. <laughs> I mean... Go away and read chapters two to five of Melchizedek's yeah. book so that you're in the right spiritual state uh, to come and see your fasting. And, and if Christopher, you're watching, I hope you take this in the sort of uh, the humorous <laughs> spirit that I'm sure you will take it in. And uh, for those uh, who are going to be observing Ramadan, inshallah, may Allah give us barakah in, in this month uh, to really uh, take take the time to uh, devote ourselves um, and we are in mandatory uzza for most of it in any case I'm really grateful for your time and thank uh, you and also thank you to, to Dr. Meltzer for this wonderful book and I can introduce our next post Ramadan book if yes you like please Hussana. do please do absolutely so uh, we hope to cover this next week but again uh, this is our last episode prior to Ramadan uh, but after Ramadan, inshallah, we shall be looking at Mustafa Bannister's fascinating Exciting. study, Exciting. the Abbasid Caliphate of Cairo, 1261. Yeah. To 1517. So I'm sure you'll agree with me that this is a very exciting. The, the subtitle, uh, I think, is quite opposite, right? I mean, out, out of, of the, the shadows. shadows. Yes. Just the way in which the shadow caliphate is been dismissed in past scholarship, I, I think yes. this will be a refreshing sort of new take um, on, on. Indeed, the, on this building, question. I imagine, on on the work of Mona Hassan and, and Absolutely, others. absolutely. Right, right. Yes. Jazakallah khairan again and thank you everyone for joining us and we look forward to seeing you inshallah in around five weeks time I suppose <laughs> or five or six weeks time. Amin. Amin.